1: Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. You may have seen tonight's special guest make her way to the mainstream media lately, including the Stephen Colbert Show, MSNBC, and others, which is refreshing when you deal with the topic of UFOs. Independent investigative journalist Leslie Kane is tonight's special guest and we will be discussing her new book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. This book is endorsed by many luminaries, Including Dr. Michio Kaku, Miles O'Brien, John Peterson, Dr. Harold Putoff, and many others. The book includes the testimonial of high level officials around the world. And it's very important for a journalist to gain the respect of the media when it has been a rarity for decades. Leslie Kane will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. Will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows. Just head on over to our website, click on the subscribe button, and take Veritas with you. The fall and winter are coming, and you know what that means. Are you still looking for Jim Humble's MMS? Look nowhere else. Go to our website and click on the MMS link. You can buy it there whether you are in the United States or abroad. And don't forget, we are still selling the 8-gigabyte. Brush metal case USB drive containing all of season one and a lot of bonus material. If you are new to the show and downloading so many large files—that's right, they are large—but the audio quality is also high too. All you need to do is plug your USB drive to your computer, open your favorite audio application, and all the shows for season one will be there for you. Go to the very best store to order. And this week, I had the pleasure of having been invited as a guest of the ExoPolitics Ohio radio show with my friend and presenter of the show, Mark Snyder. I recently met Mark at James Gilliland's Ranch and was happy to be with him on his show. Mark does a great job interviewing. And you all know I usually don't like to talk about myself unless I'm being interviewed. So listen to Mark's show and learn a few new things you may not know about me by going to ExoPoliticsOhio.us. That's exopoliticsohio.us where you can listen that way you will have an additional show to listen to this week thanks mark i thoroughly enjoyed it and i wish you continued success with your show oh and you know i'm always looking for products and services that i can recommend well i found a an all inclusive source for health supplements discount vitamins bodybuilding products you name it thousands of products at discounted prices if you are buying health products elsewhere, you are paying too much. Check the link on the right side of the website, veritasshow.com, and take a look at their prices and their selection. You won't be disappointed. And if you need to get in touch with me, go to our website and click on the Contact button or on Facebook. And now, get ready for a discussion with a respected journalist about UFOs and the generals, pilots, and government officials who go on the record. When John Podesta writes the foreword to this book and Dr. Michio Kaku says, quote, at last, a serious and thoughtful book about this controversial subject, skeptics and true believers will find a treasure trove of insightful and eye-opening information. This book is bound to set the gold standard for UFO research, unquote. Then you know that you have to listen to this show. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to know what they have to say, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. great music you hear right here on The Test Show is supplied by the independent artists from gemendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, veritasshow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs in many cases right there at gemendo.com.
0: This is Rineau, and you are listening to The Veritas Show.
1: Leslie Kane is an investigative journalist who has been published internationally and nationally in the Boston Globe, Baltimore Sun, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Star-Ledger, and The Nation, among many other publications. She is co-author of Burma's Revolution of the Spirit, The Struggle for Democratic Freedom and Dignity. Kane was also a producer and on-air host for a daily investigative news program on KPFA Radio, a Pacifica station in California. She began covering the UFO subject in 2000 with a feature story in the Boston Globe and followed with additional mainstream stories. In 2002, she co-founded the Coalition for Freedom of Information (CFI), an independent alliance advocating for greater government openness on information about UFOs and for responsible coverage by the media based on a rational and credible approach. As a director of the CFI, she was the plaintiff in a successful five-year Freedom of Information Act federal lawsuit against NASA. In 2007, she co-organized a landmark Washington, D.C. international press conference on official UFO investigations, which received media coverage around the world. Kane was a producer for the 2009 independent documentary, I Know What I Saw, and is currently working with Breakthrough Films, an award-winning film company, on a new feature documentary She and her coalition have launched an ongoing initiative to affect U.S. government policy so that scientists and aviation authorities can gain greater understanding of the still unexplained UFO phenomenon. And tonight, we'll be discussing her most recent book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. And directly from Massachusetts, I would like to welcome Leslie Kane to Veritas. Hello, Ms. Kane, and thank you for being with us.
0: Well, no, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: The pleasure is all mine. I may call you Leslie.
0: Absolutely. Of course. Thank you. I'm actually on Cape Cod, which is a couple hours outside of Boston, but in that... There you go. Vicinity, yep.
1: There you go. Well, with your new book, you've been everywhere. And as you say on the chapters of your book, Taking the Phenomenon Seriously. We take the phenomenon very seriously here, and in the next two hours, I want to discuss your findings You have appeared in many TV and radio shows, which is always a very positive thing for serious researchers like us. And I have to say, your book has been praised by very respected individuals like Dr. Michio Kaku, Miles O'Brien, formerly with CNN, Dr. Hal Puthoff, and many others. There are very serious people endorsing your work here, Leslie. And folks, when you read Leslie's book, you will find that the testimonials included come from high-level officials worldwide. To the debunkers out there, like Jim Oberg who say there is a logical explanation to every UFO sighting. How can they debunk the preponderance of testimonials from these high-level officials? What debunking strategy are they recurring to now?
0: Well, I mean, you may have seen the piece that James Ogre, oh, excuse me, James Oberg posted on MSNBC recently, which I actually just posted yesterday, a response to that piece. Yes. And his point was that, um, and he only made the, you know, in criticizing this whole book, which deals with a whole range of things, he, he was focused on this one point, which is that pilots do not make good witnesses. And, um, you know, he cited a few obscure bits of data to back that up, but the data was not, And, you know, it was really not very powerful stuff. And the point he made really didn't apply to my book anyway, the points he was making about pilots. So the whole thing, I mean, it's just sort of a weak effort to try to undermine, I assume, to try to undermine the great response that the book has been receiving. But I don't think he was very successful. And I think my response made that pretty clear.
1: And there's a lot of obfuscation with what he says. It confuses people because people think that he's referring to your work and when it's not.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, you know, he makes these points about pilots that really have nothing to do with my work, nothing to do with it at all and nothing to do with what was in the book. So, but you're right. It it puts seeds of doubts in people's minds. It confuses people, and then those that want to that that want to doubt the stuff anyway sort of have an excuse. Oh yeah, well if James Oberg says it, you know they don't necessarily think too much about it, but they can certainly align themselves with somebody like him if they are in a position of not wanting to really be open to this. So you know it, it's. But on the other hand, I sort of welcomed it because it allowed me the opportunity to write a really strong piece in response and it was posted on MSNBC and it's gotten a great deal of attention. So as far as I'm concerned, it was just another opportunity for me to talk to people about what my book is all about. And I welcome that opportunity. So I don't know if he achieved his purpose, but, um, well, I certainly well, uh, from it anyway.
1: Exactly. You leverage the opportunity and you, ikea at the moment. But before we start, I want to ask you about coalition for freedom of information because there's not a lot of people out there that pursue the truth this way. Tell us when you co-founded this organization and what exactly it does.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, it's basically kind of a loose affiliation of of volunteer people who just believe in sort of the same approach that I've put forward in the book, really. And that's when it all started, was back in 2002, when um, a gentleman named Larry Landsman, who was then with the Sci-Fi Channel, approached me about spearheading a Freedom of Information Act effort that the Sci-Fi Channel wanted to basically sponsor and, um, you know, they wanted a journalist, and I had done my Boston Globe piece, and he was impressed by that. And it just turned out that we ended up, I ended up working with this incredible team of people, including the public relations firm Podesta Mattoon, which is run by John Podesta's brother, and also a legal firm. And my lawyer's name was Lee Helfrich, and I had this fantastic lawyer, and then we also hired a, a research association in Washington called History Associates to help us break down the doors in some of these obscure, you know, freedom of information these sort of places where documents are kept. And they were experts on working with the Freedom of Information Act. So we had this amazing team and that was sort of at the the beginning we called ourselves the Coalition for Freedom of Information and it has sort of stuck around as an alliance of people who want to work at a very serious level and who want to work with higher, you know, high-level officials from around the world to present this subject in a way that's that's very credible, factually oriented, and doesn't make a lot of claims that that are not uh, are inappropriate to make, as far as we're concerned, and that's focused on providing the proper kinds of information to the media so that the media can take the subject more seriously. And also to government officials, the kinds of information that they can accept and that they can respond to. And that's sort of been the the thrust of the organization since it started. A lot of the time we worked together, we spent working on the Freedom of Information Act effort, which was around the Kecksburg UFO case. And that was a lot of the focus, but there was other stuff going on simultaneously. And now it's sort of been the book is sort of the culmination of, of all the work we did over those years.
1: How long did it take for you to write the book?
0: Well, I mean, the book, the actual creation of the book took about two years, but um, it, it built on work that I had done for many years before that. And, in fact, some of the research that I used in the book was research that I had done prior to actually, you know, this past two-year period in which I wrote it. So, But the focused, focused work was done over that long. And a lot of that work was involved with working with the contributors to the book. You know, it, I mean, I wrote about half the book myself, and the other half was written by 18 different contributors. So it took a lot of time to work with each of them. Some of them didn't speak English. We had to get translators, and it was a long process, not just to write my own work, but to have these other people contribute and write theirs as well. And that made it more complicated.
1: And I should have asked you, to give us a little bit of a background, because I'm always interested in somebody who's a, a respected uh, investigative journalist, like yourself, who gets caught in the in the subject of UFOs. It happened to me, and it happened to many others. How did that happen to you? Give us some background.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, that um, it, it was actually sort of a surprise to me, because um, I was a journalist working at a public radio station, as you mentioned earlier, KPFA Radio, which is a Pacifica network in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was a co-producer and co-host, on-air host of a daily investigative news show, a very popular drive-time radio program on that station. And I had also done quite a lot of freelance publishing in the years prior to this. T- what I'm talking about now is we're looking at 1999, which is when this all started for me. And over the years before that, I had published quite widely freelance articles in many newspapers, magazines, here and abroad, on a variety of topics. A lot of them were related to Burma, because that was an issue I w- I'd been devoted to for many years, but other things as well. So I, I had this track record as being a freelance, pub- you know, publishing freelance articles and producing this daily investigative news show. And what happened was a colleague from France sent me an English translation of the Cometa Report, which is a French report. Maybe some of your listeners are probably familiar with it. It's kind of well-known. But um, just to tell you briefly, it was a, a French study of the UFO phenomenon that was conducted by a group of very high-level people in France, including four or five generals, one of them a four-star included an admiral. It included the former head of the French National Space Agency, which is the equivalent of our NASA here, uh, the former chief of police, a lot of scientists, engineers, government uh, one government official who had been heading up the French agency for many years. Most of them retired, but not all of them. And um, these gentlemen spent three years looking into official data on UFOs and looked into some of the best cases there are. And what struck me as a journalist when I received the report was not only the, the power of the actual case reports that they provided, but it was their conclusion, which was that they believed that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was the most rational and the most valid and the most likely you know uh, explanation for these cases that they studied. Now, they made the point that this had not been proven, that we don't know what these things are, but that they thought it was an incredibly you know a totally rational and likely explanation for them. And again, these are cases that are very that have been very thoroughly studied. We're talking about that small 5% of cases which have been officially studied and to such an extent and have enough data that other other you know other explanations for them can be eliminated. So these were the cases they focused on. And I was very struck as a journalist at the time by the power of that conclusion since it was being made by generals and admiral and the former head of the space agency, I mean, I thought, you know, when people like at that level make a statement like this, it really means something, and it's also news. And I was a journalist, so I thought, this is a story here. Um, and that's what got me started on this. I wrote my first story for the Boston Globe in, in 2000, which was about the Cometa Report, basically, and other research that I'd done, but that, well, that was the focus for it. And ever since then, I have been, you know, learning more and more, doing more and more research, and um, haven't stopped. And, you know, don't want to stop. I've just been very captivated and focused by the subject of UFOs.
1: And that happened to people like Angela Joyner. She gets caught up in the Stephenville Lights uh, area in, in Texas, and all of a sudden now... She focuses on this area, too, because it's so important. And like you say, we, we have Bernard Tuanel last year who discussed the Cometa report. And the, when you put all these high-level officials together, I don't understand how any debunker out there cannot at least listen to what they have to say. But I want to comment on, on your foreword, on your book, which was written by John Podesta. Many of our listeners know who he is because we used to feature him on our intro. Uh, Tell us more about your interaction with John Podesta, someone who was the co-chairman for President Obama's transition team, who said at the National Press Club in 2002, I believe, that we can handle the truth and that we should know not only because it's right, but because it's the law. Podesta must know more than the average citizen about the UFO phenomenon and the secrecy. What's your take on this?
0: Okay well that's and that's a that's a really lovely statement that he made that was made actually when I talked to you earlier about founding the coalition for freedom of information well that statement that was made by him at the first press conference organized by the coalition for freedom of information in which we launched our freedom of information act initiative and he, uh, John Podesta, came to that press conference because he supported the work we were doing, which he's, a, he's a, an advocate for government openness. He believes very much in the people's right to information on every subject. And he was actually responsible for many reforms that were made to the Freedom of Information Act under President Clinton. So this has been, uh, a, you know, a concern of his and a focus of his for many, many years. And he's also curious about the UFO issue. So he was he was interested in our in our effort and has since that initial statement you know sort of remained a supporter to this whole effort which we can talk about later which involved our our um, you know our team effort to try and get more documents about the Kexburg UFO case and he just you know was ex- was willing to be a supporter and a public supporter of this effort um, I don't honestly think that he knows a lot of deep dark secrets about UFOs I mean I've talked to him and I think he's has Curious and perplexed about them, as as most of us are. Um, he's he's one of the few who's willing to actually be public about his interest in it and to be outspoken about it. But I, um, you know, and I, I just don't think that that means that he has some kind of secret knowledge. I just think he wants to have see the problem solved, as he said in the beginning of the in the forward to my book. He said that he thinks that aviation people and scientists and government officials should all work together to solve this problem, to solve the mystery of what UFOs actually are. And he's been willing to state that publicly, and I think that's, that's his position. Um, and he's just been a, a tremendous support over the years um, and is a, a very, valued, you know, very valued voice on the scene here for all of us.
1: And when you have President Clinton during his uh, presidency say that the two most important stories he wanted to find out during his presidency were who killed Kennedy and the truth about UFOs. And if he did not get those two, then, of course, I don't think anybody else will.
0: Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not going to give up hope, but certainly, I, you know, he, <laughs> he put some feelers out and he tried. But I don't think he tried super hard. I mean, he I guess the way it worked was he sent his, his uh, associate, Webster Hubble, to try and find out. Webster
1: Hubble, correct. Yeah, correct.
0: and then he just sort of, he wasn't successful. And then, I you know, obviously he had lots of other things he had to focus on, so I don't think it was like a, a huge effort of his. But, yes, I mean, he's another person who's curious and interested and would like to know more about what's going on with respect to UFOs. So um, there are people out there. You know, I think most of the politicians are, are consumed by so many, you know, issues that are on their Late. Uh, life and death issues for human beings, and economic crises, and all the kinds of things, the wars, and all the things they have to deal with that you know they don't have a lot of uh, time and energy to focus on the subject, even if they're curious about it. But um, certainly there have been high-level people over the years who have been interested in this. There's no question about it.
1: And that's the an issue, Leslie. You know, we call it here the case of death. We had uh, 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 Kucinich, we had... Uh, Governor, uh, uh, New Mexico's Governor Richardson, who made statements in the past, and whenever somebody asks them about any of these subjects, UFOs, it's almost as, as you said, there's so many other important topics, but when you think about this, the UFO topic is probably one of the most important topics anybody could, could discuss, just because the repercussions are life-changing for the entire planet. But it's almost like the kiss of death. they start talking about it, and all of a sudden they get ridiculed their 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 the votes go down, and people just seem to think that they're lunatics for saying, "Why is it
0: Yeah, I mean the why question is really hard, really hard one to answer. And I think your point about Kucinich is so interesting though and I actually wrote about this in my book and I just want to say the title of the book UFOs Generals Pilots and Government Officials Go on the Record for People Who Don't Know. And you're absolutely right. I mean he, you know, he was asked this a question at the uh, at one of the presidential debates. I think it was in 2008 maybe in which the the poor guy was asked by Tim Russert, you know, is it true that you've seen a UFO and you could hear the laughter coming before the audience to respond yeah there was a studio audience there was a big audience there and you know he just said yeah i saw something unidentified i saw an unidentified flying object and just that statement and it you know laughter so i mean it's, it's um i felt really you know that people love to pick on dennis kucinich so here was another opportunity but you're right i mean it's really a problem in the culture that we have this ridicule factor and it's so hard to answer why. I think there are so many factors that affect it, you know. And it, 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 you can go back to the 50s, in which the Robertson panel was initially set up, the CIA secret CIA scientific, so-called scientific panel that was brought together for a few days to figure out how to handle the volume of UFO reports that were coming in, and they put out a report that was saying that they thought UFOs should be dump, debunked, and they had no problem using the word debunked and you know talked about that it should be they should keep you know these various that the, the a government agencies should use you know all these tactics including debunking to use the media to go about and uh, make fun of UFOs and it sort of became part of the culture through the 50s and 60s you had project blue books you know giving ridiculous explanations for cases and ridicule happened starting there even though there's also what's that
1: I'm saying swamp gas
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, there were certainly, at the same time, there was a lot of serious work that was being done. There were a lot of serious articles that were coming out in, in various, you know, Look Magazine and lots of publications and books being written by Kehoe and there was James McDonald. I mean, there were both things going on simultaneously. But, yeah, the stuff coming out of Project Blue Book, such as Swamp Gas and other things like that, certainly sort of set the uh, set us on some kind of a trend here. And um, even though, of course, Heinick later, you know, had a very came out very much in favor of what we called you know, he came out pro UFO if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And certainly had regrets about the some of the things he had done while he was with Project Blue Book. But I just think we sort of built up this momentum within the culture and when the when the Condon committee report came out it just sort of put the nail in the coffin, really, that the scientists now could back away from it. You know, all the government officials and the scientific community based on Condon were all saying there's nothing here worth studying, and it's all ridiculous, it's a joke, and it just became so kind of interwoven into the fabric of the culture and how we look at this issue that it's just sort of carried itself through, and because there hasn't been enough of, uh, official involvement to break through that, I think that it's just sort of maintained itself. At the same time, I think there's been um, a trend away from it as well. And I don't know if, if you would agree with this, Mel, but I think since the last 10 years that the media have actually become a more serious towards the subject. There's been more coverage and better coverage of it. And that, you know, even though we do have a problem with ridicule still, I also think there are some threads that are you can look at where things seem to be getting better. So, I mean, my... and. But my, I sort of see my book as being my biggest effort so far to try and change this ridicule. I mean, I think that it's impossible for anyone to read this book, as you said earlier, and, and, real, and not realize that there is a serious phenomenon here and um, it's a real issue. And there's no way you can read the cases in this book. And the, the piece is written by the, the, the people themselves, including five generals. And, and not come away with a change in your perspective if indeed you had you you felt this was worthy of ridicule. So I'm hoping this book can be a tool to, to really have an impact on what you've brought up, which is such a serious problem. And so far I think it's doing that because it's just gotten tremendous response in the media, and we're already on the New York Times bestseller list. So I think we have a chance of really making a difference with this book, and I'm very hopeful that we
1: can do that. And what you said is so true. I had uh, this discussion with Nick Pope last year regarding the the not seeing the media, the, the mocking, the giggling it's it's less prevalent and even I have to say, your appearance at the uh, Steve Colbert's uh, report, we know that it, it's a humorous show, but you did very, very well and and the fact that they're bringing you out into these high profile uh, programs gives more validity to the UFO topic, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm just very, very pleased with the mainstream, you know, uh, the invitations I've had from the mainstream media on this book. The the week that I did the Stephen Colbert show, there were two other national TV shows that invited me on as well. One of them was MSNBC news program, it was The Late Afternoon, another one was Fox News Channel, and they also had um, Michio Kaku come on MSNBC the day before I did specifically to discuss the book. I mean, that's why they had him on, and I was just blown away by that. And he actually, you know, he gave this book a rave review and said, um, this is the closest thing to a smoking gun we've ever had on the subject of UFOs. And, you know, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, an an extremely well-known physicist who's published four or five best-selling books and is just, you know, an incredibly uh, well-respected person. And so you know, I—it's I, just I think it's you know this is the kind of book, because of the nature of the book, the kind of material, the way it's presented, the whole package is something that the uh, mainstream media can really relate to, and we're not making any claims you know that lend themselves to ridicule or that give them any opportunities to ridicule it. And really, I mean everybody's fascinated by the subject of UFOs, and when you can hand the media something that's really legitimate, that's really solid. Um, they're going to respond, and I, you know, and with a, with somebody like John Podesta writing a foreword, they just they understand that this is a serious book, and I've been very very pleased with how it's how that's happened, and um, it's still ongoing. I mean, I'm still getting calls all the time, and I've just uh, finished a new slideshow for the Huffington Post book website, which is another mainstream, you know, totally mainstream uh, outlet for writers. So. It's all happening, and I'm very, very pleased about it.
1: Well, you, you help us pave the way for serious researchers to, to continue moving forward. But Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor Kaku, to me, he's the newest Einstein, and for him to validate and endorse your work, that must be making the media wonder if finally we have come to the age of taking this matter seriously. But you mentioned the, the ratings. You know, when TVs go to what's called the rating sweep, If you look at all the TV stations, the majority of the programs that they air are UFO-related. What does that tell you? That people really are interested, and that's when they decide which TV channel is the best because they put uh, UFO shows.
0: Yeah, I think people really, really are interested. I think you're absolutely right. And the, I think the problem has been that it's hard for people to sort out the real information from the fan, fanciful information. Right. Um, and, you know, and it's just such a morass of stuff out there. And most of the TV shows are entertainment-oriented. They're not factually oriented. And, um, you know, people are hungry for the truth about this issue. What, what do we actually know about it? What are the facts? and what don't we know what do we still need to learn and that's what i'm trying to present in this book and i think it's you know it really is reaching people because they want that kind of clarity and they want to know they want to sort out the real from the speculative and you know the the real information the facts the the government documents the officials can talk about this all the the body of information that is presented in this book is so extraordinary that we don't need to take it any further than it already is. I mean, we, well, we don't need to speculate. We don't need to draw conclusions when we don't really know what the answers are, because the information speaks for itself, and it's, it's, it's amazing stuff, just uh, the bare-bones facts and the stories that, you know, that you, you, in this book, I mean, where you have Air Force pilots who have actually attempted to shoot UFOs down. Lots of things in the book that I don't think most people know even occur, in terms of interactions with UFOs. So um, I just think it's presenting the kind of information that we all need and that people are really hungry for and that the media needs so that they can, you know, understand that um, there is a serious way to approach this and it gives them something that they can hold on to. And um, that's, you know, so that was my goal in writing the book. I mean, that's what, that was specifically the way I was focused. Was to provide serious information for the for the mainstream and for people who wouldn't normally even read a UFO book. You know, provide the kind of information that can go to a member of Congress, for instance, and has nothing in it that's going to turn them away. So I was very careful to be selective along those lines, and I think it's I think it's really paying off now.
1: And we've heard some of these stories individually here or there, but you have compiled them all together. And you've also reviewed hundreds of government documents, aviation reports, radar data, and case studies with corroborating physical evidence. What challenges did you face while compiling all of this?
0: Um, You know, once I got to the point of actually working on the book, you know, it was pretty straightforward. I mean, the main, you know, the really only challenge of it was it was just incredibly hard work. I mean, I had to work very, very hard, be very focused. Not do hardly anything else for a couple of years. Deal with people from all over the world, and some of them who didn't speak English, and you know, very different kinds of people who were the contributors, and um, it was just a, a complicated, huge amount of work. Um, and that's, but there were no, there was no sort of obstacles that I really had to bang my head against uh, in, in the process of doing it. There, you know, it was I had done so much of the work because I've been studying this for so long that I felt like I knew. What information I wanted to bring to the book it was it was hard to figure out also how to structure it because you know I have seventeen pieces in here written by other people, and I had to find a way to put the whole thing together so that it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. you know it sort of it had a narrative that flowed and told a story and and, and moved along, and it wasn't just sort of a collection of loose pieces. it all had to hold together. And that was really one of the more challenging parts of the book was to figure out how to make it all hold together. And I, I'm very happy with the way it's it's worked out. But it was just the, the hard work involved was really, um, you know, the main thing I can say about it. Just plugging along and not doing very much else for a couple of years. Uh, and a lot of a lot we all know i mean that's what how you know When james fox works on his film it was the same thing you just get completely absorbed in it and you don't do anything else and i think that's um you know the payoff is that you you get a quality product out of that so um that was a that was that's really the main thing i can say about the process of actually putting this together
1: and speaking of uh our mutual friend, James Fox. We're very lucky on this show to have had the opportunity to interview many of the people you discuss in your book, but I have a question slash comment that I want to get out of the way. Recently, James Fox and I did some reporting regarding the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, and it made it around the world. Offline, James and I would talk about how two people who investigate UFOs would be reporting a very serious matter like the oil spill. In your case, you you investigate uh, Burma, among many people, Myanmar today. And I say this because when he was out there reporting, people would ask him, so you are a documentary filmmaker? What kind of films do you produce? And of course, when he mentioned the word UFOs, people would roll their eyes. So he was very comfortable when we were doing our interviews because he knows I know better and our listeners know better. Just because you investigate UFOs doesn't mean you are not qualified to investigate serious matters. UFOs is a serious matter, and you are not. You are another example of this, uh, Leslie. But primarily, I want to mention this story because I was pleasantly surprised to know that you devote a whole chapter, and we can talk about this later. You name the chapter The Roots of UFO Debunking in America. You say, quote, because all of us have long been exposed to an atmosphere of ridicule and the automatic dismissal of the UFO phenomenon, I suspect that the information presented so far may have been very surprising, even shocking for some readers. I know I'm jumping ahead and there's much to cover, but I think it's imperative to talk about this first because when people like you, James Fox, Richard Dolan, Grant Cameron, and other serious investigative journalists who I consider my friends, when all of you get involved, it is important to all of us. Tell us what motivated you to write that chapter, and of course we'll want to know what the root of the UFO debunking is.
0: Yeah, well I mean, you know, this chapter I think is really important because you really can't present a serious treatment of the UFO subject without dealing with the whole aspect of ridicule that we've been talking about and debunking. the The fact that there is this tendency to debunk UFOs in this country. And, you know, I just wanted to really bring that out into the open throughout the book. I mean, the chapter you mentioned is, you know, about a third or a fourth of the way through the book, but it's a theme that runs throughout, and it's something that we absolutely have to sort of get out there so that people can see through it and um, move beyond it. And so I was sort of interested in exposing for people, you know, What's behind that? And not just historically, but later on in the book we go into more psychologically what's behind it in the chapter written by the political scientists, and then I I sort of comment on that myself. But this chapter that you mentioned, yes, is about the history of how the debunking situation got started. And again, we mentioned earlier about the Robertson panel. I already talked about that, but it really deals with what some of the earlier documents say as to how the government was responding. They didn't know how How the Air Force was, didn't really know how to handle the situation. Um, and there were so many reports coming in, and then you had this um, issue coming up with the Robertson panel and, you know, the estimate of the situation. There's so many... Div- I don't know how much you want to go into the specific history, but it sort of traces back how the whole thing got started with the debunking problem. And I th- I think that the Robertson panel, the CIA panel that was convened in 1953, was a big part of that and was really one of the roots of the problem that we still have today in dealing with UFOs. So the chapter does talk quite a bit about that. Um the documents on that that convention, that CIA meeting have been released through the Freedom of Information Act and it's quite shocking that they talk about how, you know, our agencies and this government should debunk the subject, should infiltrate civilian groups. That was another thing they recommend infiltrate civilian groups to keep an eye on them. They just wanted to minimize uh people's interest in UFOs so that it could be managed. And and then of course we move forward to the, the whole issue with the Condon Committee and um Project Blue Book wanting to shut down the, the people involved with Blue Book wanting to close it down and wanting to find a way to do that. And then you have this Condon Committee study from University of Colorado which was a completely bogus operation and you know, we won't go oh there's much written about the problems with the Continent Committee and basically concluding that these UFOs were not worthy of investigation. Um, many problems there and that just sort of that was sort of the nail on the coffin. So by nineteen seventy, you know, the whole the couple of decades had sort of unfolded in which we were involved in a pattern of debunking and a pattern of ridicule and I think that's mainly what this chapter looks at—is just where it all came from and how it all started. And I think it's it's really important for all of us to realize that. And you know, when you can, for the average person, Mel, who doesn't know about this subject already, which you know, who this book was written for, I mean, they read this chapter and they go, "Oh my God, I didn't know about any of this." And no wonder, you know, and it allows them to sort of see through even their own attitudes of ridicule that they have because people pick up these attitudes without really thinking about it. It's just It's
1: like of, a virus.
0: It's like a virus. They just grow up with it. Oh yeah, well that's UFOs, you know, they just grow up in that atmosphere and when they read something like this they can think, Wow, you know, maybe this ridicule isn't appropriate. My God, look at I didn't know there was a secret CIA panel that got this whole thing going. So yeah, you know, It's very, very important that people, um, and again, to emphasize that this book is written for a per- the people out there who don't know already about UFOs and haven't really thought about it very much. And um, I think it's, it's just an important element of the whole thing to get all of this out in the open.
1: And the question is, if the government dismisses this topic and the CIA had to get together in the 50s and, and do a concerted effort that if the ridiculing factory doesn't work, they need to infiltrate and so on. What is the reason, the purpose that they're doing this? Because it really makes you wonder, if they're doing this, it's because there's some truth behind the veil, don't you think?
0: Could be. I mean, again, you know, and again, we, we, I sort of hesitate to speculate too much. I mean, certainly the documents show that there was a recognition that these UFOs were not Russian. They couldn't explain them there was even an effort within Project Blue Book to put forth this, this um, paper called The Estimate of the Situation in which numerous staff members within the earlier form of Blue Book called Sign, Project Sign concluded that these were these were most likely extraterrestrial spacecraft. And they put that forward in a paper and they believed these were interplanetary objects. There was no other explanation for them. So that thinking was going on in the very beginning um, and the, the documents show that there was a lot of concern about people panicking. You know, if, if if we were to come out with certain things, so. But the question then becomes, which you raise, which everybody's so fascinated about, is how much did we actually know? Do we have a crash saucer? Did we do secret projects? How much did we actually know within the you know the government levels, the the deeper, darker secret government levels that motivated us to to do things like the Robertson panel. And I don't really think we have a clear answer for that. I mean, I these things could have easily gone on even if we didn't know any know much about UFOs or didn't know anything more about them than than, you know, was pretty much made public, which is that they develop had these extraordinary capacities as it, as General Twining said in his famous memo. You know, I mean it was all it was all there in the minds of these officials that these were extraordinary objects that we couldn't explain. They weren't Russian. They behaved like in all these various ways with incredible fast maneuvers and, you know, hovering and didn't respond to transponders and all the things about them were all known. So it's hard to imagine that they weren't concerned about them being extraterrestrial. And they were because we know that too, but we don't, what we don't know is what they actually did know and what kind of, evidence and possibly physical evidence they actually had that they might have kept secret. This is a matter of speculation. Um, so I don't, you know, I can't really give an answer for that. But um, we do know what a lot, which is that they were they were aware of the phenomenon, they couldn't explain it, and they didn't know what to do about it.
1: And it really makes you wonder, and this is, I don't think, speculation, the fact that if if and I'll discuss this in a few minutes. The, the the definition of UFO because it's 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 not being properly addressed. When people think of UFO, they think extraterrestrial craft, and that's not the case. But perhaps the government doesn't want to admit it. Well, we can talk about the technology, but they cannot admit that we all we are totally vulnerable. And in your book. You mentioned a very respected person, Captain Robert Salas, who in 1967, uh, while guarding the Minuteman missiles in in, uh, Montana, all of a sudden, they all shut down. Do you want to talk about this uh, this, uh, story?
0: Yeah, and that's a very important case, and it relates to questions of national security, which we also explore in the book. You know, are UFOs a national security concern? And uh, Robert Salas was... um, uh you know a as you said, he was stationed at an important um base, I believe it was maelstrom
1: maelstrom mm hmm
0: base yeah maelstrom air force base and in sixty seven he was um on duty and he received a call that there was a sort of a, a reddish object hovering over the base and um the bottom line that what happened was that these these um his missiles actually lost power i mean the missiles went dead basically and um these were missiles that were miles apart from each other it was just a kind of a phenomenal situation where the missiles went dead and they could never explain how that happened and there was a ufo present at the time so it's an amazing situation and it's happened in other situations as well and um it's a it just brings up the question of you know how we should be responding to this issue if indeed, which we know is the case, that UFOs can have this kind of effect, you know, we need to be handling this a lot more responsibly than we are, given the fact that it has been able to disable nuclear missiles.
1: And you may remember the story when President Reagan called uh, Premier Gorbachev in the 80s to talk about this subject, and that's when they opened the direct line between both countries, because... Sometimes they were both experiencing things that were not coming from the other side, and to avoid a nuclear catastrophe that was established, isn't that an interesting story?
0: Yeah, I I really don't know that much about that story. You probably know more about it than I do, but yes, that's, that's of course, very interesting, And, and I think there's always been concern that we have to be careful we don't mistake a UFO for something else, such as a nuclear missile, and react to it inappropriately. I mean, that was certainly a concern back in the 60s. There are some government documents about that that show that people were concerned that we need to be able to identify these these UFOs because what if we thought they were a nuclear missile coming over to destroy us and we and we we fired a missile back at Russia? Exactly. I mean, there are so many risks involved in not being open about this and not educating people in the military and people who are responsible for the defense of our country, not educating them about this issue. I mean, they, you know, because something serious could happen sometime that could, um, something could happen that could be really dangerous. And so um, we need to be more educated about it. And that's that's certainly one of the points that the writers in my book make as well, some of these high-level military people, is the, the issue of preparedness. And the Cometa report back in 1999 was very concerned about that as well, that we could have some kind of a disastrous event happen in which human beings would be the problem, not the phenomenon itself, because we have not been properly trained in how to respond. And we don't know what we're dealing with. So um, the more education we have about it, the better.
1: And it was uh, Professor Kaku who, over a year and a half ago, said that he advocates for such a system of communication between countries. You may remember the attacks in Mumbai uh, When Pakistan and India were almost at the brink of war, those are two nuclear countries with the finger on the button. You know, what if one of these UFOs were to cross the respective uh, airspace? It would cause a a, a worldwide catastrophe just because of this. But Leslie, this may be trivial to some, but I think it's important to define the word UFO. As you know, originally we used the term flying saucer. It was then changed to UFO by the intelligence apparatus. Most people, when they hear of UFO, they think of extraterrestrial craft, as I said before. You talk about this in the book. Tell us more.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think that's a fundamental problem, and I I bring that up right in the beginning of the book, um, because we've got to be clear from square one what we're talking about when we talk about UFOs. And we are not talking about an alien spacecraft or an extraterrestrial object when we talk about a UFO. The word means unidentified flying object. And as you said, it was it was actually an Air Force term. It was not, and 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 you know, and we have an exact definition, which is in the book. But it basically says that anything that we can't explain through to be a, something known to us, and all the different options, you know, of airplanes and all the different things that are options for us. Um, you know, then it's something unidentified. It's an unidentified flying object. It's that simple. And unfortunately, this term, the word has come to, to mean in most people's minds an alien spacecraft. So when people say, do you believe in UFOs, which is really a question that doesn't make a lot of sense because we know that these objects actually exist, what they're really saying is, do you believe in aliens or do you believe are right. being visited by outer space spacecraft?" And the problem is that's just the wrong question to ask. And when they ask it, they're not understanding what the word UFO actually means. So we have a big problem here just in terms of the basic language and the basic clarity about what the words actually mean that we're using. So it's really an important point to bring up is when we talk about a UFO, what, we're at, what are we actually talking about? Part of the problem we have with ridicule, I think, is is that people equate the word with... Alien spaceship craft if they if they weren't thinking of it that way, there'd be nothing to ridicule there'd be no reason to to, to joke about it and it's always about the little green men and all this stuff
1: right exactly
0: yeah, you know, and if you're just thinking of it as something unidentified in the sky and and be aware too that most of these reports do eventually become identified. I mean, we can identify almost all reports of of unidentified objects, so you know it's something to be laughing about it's just the problem that it's been misconstrued and you know i think the media all the sci-fi movies we've had and television specials and all the sort of hype that's gone on over the years about ufo's has sort of transformed it into this other more you know other fanciful um word that has a that has an inaccurate definition in most people's minds so i'm hoping that the the book um My book will change that. I mean, I make a big point in the beginning of of defining what it means and making it very clear. And everybody throughout the book who talks about UFOs is always talking about it from the correct definition. So, But I'm so glad you brought that up, Mel. It's really an important point.
1: Very important. And and I don't mean to be jumping around, but it's, it's fascinating to go back and forth because the whole book is interconnected. You could be in chapter 11, but it's everything is connected with each other. Chapter 3 of your book is entitled, Pilots, A Unique Window into the Unknown. That is such a true statement, Leslie. But once again, we go back to not only the radical factor, but in this case, it's more than that. Anyone who is still employed by an airline, for example, if a pilot comes forward and talks about being a witness of a sighting, they risk the stigma and potentially their career. Is it because the airline thinks... If any other pilot talks about this, people are so programmed that they will stop flying with that particular airline, thinking the pilots are mentally challenged. What is the reason?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that could very much be part of that issue that, you know, if, if a pilot, if, if an airline, if it becomes known that a certain airline has pilots that are seeing UFOs, you know, what are the public going to think about? Are they going to think their pilots are have something wrong with them? Um, it's, that's part of it. I really believe that. And it's just, it is just—it is a very, very unfortunate situation that so many more pilots see these objects than, than report them. And we have Dr. Richard Haynes to thank for that, for the research, for the knowledge of that fact, because he, he's a former senior scientist from NASA, a very accomplished scientist who has spent many decades interviewing pilots and collecting data about pilot sightings, particularly as they pertain to aviation safety issues, but also just Pilots who see these things, and most of them don't report them to their airlines, don't report them to any, you know, the FAA or any official aviation agencies. And some of them, a lot of them have been willing to report them to Dr. Haynes when he approaches them. But he has learned that only a small percentage of these cases ever get reported. For you know, And you're right. I mean, the main concern that they've voiced is ridicule and job security. So obviously there's certainly messages being given to these people uh, that it's not a good idea for them to talk about UFOs, and they've gotten the message. And that that is a real problem. It's just when you think about how ridiculous it is that uh, they're allowed to report everything they see in the sky and every danger they encounter, except everything except this one category of thing, just because we're prejudiced about it. I mean, that's how ridiculous it is. So, you know, Richard Haynes has written a – I wrote the chapter you mentioned, and then that's followed by a chapter um, – well, we have another case that comes in between it, but Richard Haynes has written a, a really fascinating chapter for the book um, about this very issue of, of aviation safety cases and what pilots have, what pilots go through in their efforts to report and why they don't report more often. Um, <clears throat> it's a very important situation, again, that needs to be changed. I mean, there's just so much we need to change um, and I, I wondered, Mel, if I could mention my website for people. It's of course. UFOs, yeah, UFOs com. We keep talking about the book and the book, the title of the book is UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record and my website is com, kind of an abbreviation of the title and I would just encourage people to go there if they're interested in getting the book or learning more about it, joining our comment boards, becoming part of the Facebook page and just joining in on the discussions we're having about all of this information. I, I hope people will do that. Um, again, UFOsOnTheRecord.com. And, you know, part of the purpose of this book is to point out all the things that we need to change. And I think, Mel, you're bringing up these issues one after the other. The pilot situation is certainly one of them, a major problem, that they don't report their sightings.
1: And, and a prime example of this, uh, of, of brave, there are many brave captains out there uh, civilian commercial pilots who think of the passengers that they have and they don't even think twice about losing their career they report it you know you have the situation in, in with the Jap, uh, Japan Airlines you have in Mexico you have another prime example in your book with Captain Hill, uh, Phil Schultz from TWA he did not file a report with TWA but instead he worked diligently with you to accurately reconstruct the the event you see folks what is there to gain for a career pilot to make this up? Give us some highlights before we take our, our one and only intermission. Give us some highlights of some of the, or, or, or this pilot in particular. And when we come back from our break, I want to really get into the meat of the book. We've discussed a lot of the foundations, a lot of the background material. But on the second segment, we'll be discussing a lot of what she has been able to gather. Tell us about Captain Phil Schultz.
0: Okay, well, this is a case, actually, that was researched in detail by Dr. Haynes, rather than myself, and he reports on it in his chapter in the book and also provides a fascinating drawing that he created in the cockpit with uh, Captain Schultz sitting right next to him of exactly what happened as he looked through the window. And Captain Schultz was flying a TWA jet full of passengers. It was in 1982, I believe, 1981, actually. And what he described seeing was this sort of this round large silver kind of metallic object which had what he called portholes around the side. They looked like portholes to him and a rim around the side and a, a central cer- uh, dark circle in the center, disc-shaped thing, and it actually was just coming right at his windshield very fast, and he was—he and his co-pilot actually um, put their heads down. You know, They put themselves into the collision position because they suddenly saw those things coming at them, and they thought it was going to hit them, and they... Braced for the impact, but it never did. It kind of it, it, the the object zoomed off and didn't actually collide, which is a common occurrence, by the way. That Dr. Haynes has noticed through talking to pilots that sometimes they do think they're going to collide with these objects, but the objects always move out of the way in time. So. Dr. Schultz, you know, had a very clear memory of this, and not Captain Schultz, I mean, and he spent, as we said, spent quite a bit of time talking to Dr. Haynes, filing out a detailed handwritten report, which I have a copy of, and which is really fascinating in the way he describes the way the atmosphere was around the object and lots of different details about it. And, again, he was um, he didn't report it to TWA, though. But he was willing to sit down with Dr. Haynes, and it's just one example of many cases that he has researched which are fascinating but not reported officially to the airline, let's say, or to an aviation agency. But uh, Haynes has kept incredibly good records. and um, So that's one case, and there are many, many cases of pilots encountering these objects. Sometimes they're reported and sometimes there aren't. And they tend to be much more reported much more regularly in other countries, which is also an important point we make in the book, which maybe we can go into after the break, Mel, is more about the differences between how this issue is handled in America as opposed to how it's handled in other countries.
1: Absolutely. There's a big contrast there. I've spoken to Many of the people you've spoken to, A.J. Givard in Brazil and some people in Europe, there's a big contrast between countries. But we have to take our one and only intermission. Leslie Kane's book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Once again, how do we get in touch with your work, Leslie, your website, and how to buy the book?
0: Great. Well, the website, again, is UFOsOnTheRecord.com. And my last name is spelled K-E-A-N, it's just in case people aren't familiar with it. Um, the book UFOs on the Record, UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. And you can buy it, actually, if you go to my website. There are buttons for Amazon and all these other different booksellers. Amazon has a very good deal on the book. It's way below list price. and um, Or you can just go directly to Amazon.com and type in the title, just type in UFOs and my name or you can easily find the book but the easiest way is probably to go to UFOsOnTheRecord.com and click on one of the buttons that you'll see right there on the home page and you'll have your copy in a couple of days if you do it
1: that way And I like the seriousness and the formality that you use into to write in this book. Very formal in the sense that you get testimonial from these high-level officials. That's always very important. It raises the bar for all of us who do this. Folks, don't go anywhere. We're here with Leslie Kane. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We are also discussing the show at the Manticore Forum with members around the world. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
0: timothy good and you're listening to the veritas show